Welcome to another episode of Horrorversary. If this is your first time listening into the show, we keep things very simple here. It's basically a podcast celebrating horror movies, celebrating anniversaries. Now, if you're a returning guest, you might have seen that we were off for a week there, but you know what? It's 2020. We don't really have to make any excuses, and we had episodes out every single other week. So we, we're we bringing you, you know, the content that we can at this time, looking back at films, seeing what makes them so special. And this week, we have an interesting film. And the reason why I say that is lots of times you say horror to people, and you'll either have a very narrow view of what that genre can be, or wide open. And I'm somebody who subscribes to the idea that horror can be anything. And you can have a horror film that touches on basically every other genre. You can have comedies, you know, that maybe they'll have action, maybe it works, maybe drama, you know. Horror is something that you can put anything into it, any other genre. And as long as the people who are behind the camera and working on the film wholeheartedly believe that they can, you know, pull this off well, it, it usually fits. So, of course, this week we are doing Predator 2. And when I mentioned to that to a couple of friends and was really excited about it, they're like, but that's not really a horror movie. And I was like, well, well how so? And they're like, well, it's more of an action film. I go, yeah, but it, it's still a horror film. And they said, well, but it's more of a science fiction film. And I said, it can be all those things. And I know that IMDb might not be the best barometer for everything, but if you go into IMDb, it actually says action, horror, science fiction. And... There's lots of times, especially within the last 10 years, that when you're talking about different genre films, that people say that a film is genre bending because it's able to kind of break the rules of that and have elements of other genres in there. And this film is from 1990. And I think one of the real reasons that Predator 2 is such a special film is because of... Okay, I was... I had a soapbox moment, so I understand, you know, I'd let things get away from myself. So that's understandable. But the guest that we have tonight, I am very excited to have on because there's somebody who definitely part of the reason why I, I, I'm in writing or at the point that I am now is because this individual one day said, hey, you should talk to this person because they're always looking for people, you know, for new online voices if you want to get out there and get to writing. And so I'm excited to have him on. And then. I'm excited to have him on also because when it comes to the Predator franchise, I can't really think of a better person to speak to. From the Media Rewind podcast, please give it up for Mr. Dustin Pryor. How's it going, Dustin? What's going on, Mr. Adrian Torres? How you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, you know, getting getting by. I, I got to uh, enjoy a very hot Friday afternoon watching Predator 2, so I can't really complain. Want some candy? Uh, it wasn't high pitched or frightening enough but that's definitely something that we will get in uh onto so like i said i mentioned that you're from the media rewind podcast for people who might not be familiar with that show please let them know what it is about well thanks um genius uh, genius mcginn um uh i we we host a, a podcast that's really I'd love to say it's niche, but it's it's more of the shows and the movies that we love. So we celebrate anything from like the big screen to the small screen. Uh, we've covered everything from AMC's Into the Badlands, AMC's The Walking Dead, HBO's Game of Thrones. We kind of throw a lot of action movies into the fold, and we really just celebrate everything that we love. I mean, there's really no rhyme or reason to what we do, um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. 
<laughs> now, now, if you guys are familiar with him mentioning, you know, Genius in there, of course, Genius is also the co-host of the Nightmare Junkhead podcast, and and we've had him on the show twice before. So you you can imagine with his shenanigans, and then as you hear the discussion from Dustin, exactly why you might want to, you know, check out that show. So before we get into the very first question, or maybe it'll tie into it, but when I, you know, put this list out there and let everybody kind of see what there were, you were somebody who was clamoring to do Predator 2. What what was it that made you say, I have to get out there, I have to be able to talk about Predator 2 on its anniversary? Well, it's like you alluded to earlier on in your intro. I mean, this is a franchise and really like a movie series that I've just been in love with ever since I was a kid. You know, we, we talk a lot because I, I frequent the, the Nerds of Nostalgia podcast quite a bit. And one of the things that I've always loved ever since I was a kid is all of like the robust action, you know, action movies of the 1980s. And, and being drawn into that, I, I was always a huge Arnold Schwarzenegger fan. Um, he was one of my brother's favorite actors. And then by kind of like default, because of that nostalgic link with, you know, him being my best friend, it was like I loved Arnold as well. So, you know, that that introduced me to Predator. And then when they announced that they were doing a sequel, I mean, it was just like, oh, we get to see this again, you know, and it was it's completely different. But it's still in that same that that same mythos and that same genre. And it's just uh, another movie that it's it's one of those ones where and and I know you've got them at any point in time. You can pop it on. It it can either be in the background or it can be something you can focus on, but you enjoy it every single time you watch it and you find something new to love about it every single time you do. And I think that perfectly rolls into the first question that we ask everybody. If you're somebody who's listening for the first time, the, we have a, a simple rundown that we keep. This show is basically a glorified gush session, and it's as much about the guests that we bring on as the movie that they're talking about. I'm, I'm just kind of a figurehead here to help steer the ship. But we asked five very simple, basic questions to every single guest. It's the same question. And how they answer kind of dictates where that conversation goes. And of course, part of the reason why we're choosing something like Predator 2 is we're only looking at those films that are hitting the big milestones, the ones that are hitting the 10s, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. Because as exciting as, you know, that 25 year or that 27 or that 42nd, those major milestones is when you look back at a film that that you see it in a different light. You see how it influences things going forward. And that's why I'm really excited to discuss Predator 2, because I think it's it kind of has a different vibe than what people are expecting if they haven't watched it in a while or if they've never seen it before. So the first question we ask is, do you remember the first time you saw Predator 2? I do. Um, Genius and I are pretty lucky because Kansas City... When, when we were growing up, AMC was very lack, uh, lackadaisical with their restrictions on their age limitations. You know, back in the day, it was like rated R. You had to have an adult or, a, you know, a guardian that was 17 years or older to get in. Well, AMC, and I mean, I don't want to get anybody in trouble, of course. But it's okay. They it's were AMC. Very, they're always in trouble. So, <laughs> But they were very, very lax back in the day, and they could be now. But uh, they, they were very lax on, you know, the age requirement. And, you know, like I'd said, I'd, I'd seen the original Predator, I think, three three times opening weekend back in 87 with my oldest brother. And when Predator 2 came out, it was like, OK, we're going to go see this again. But about that time, you start gravitating toward going with your friends instead of, you know, going with your older brother. Well, I remember seeing the opening weekend. I saw it with a group of friends 
on Friday and then on that Saturday went and uh, went into the movie with my brother. I think we saw it Saturday and Sunday. So I saw it. I saw Predator two, three times opening weekend as well. That's I mean, that that's that, that's got to be, you know, a, a special experience. Were you hooked exactly from the moment or I mean, you said you saw it a couple of times that weekend. So you think so. Or, or was it kind of an each time you saw it, it built up more and more and more. You know, and, and really the reason why I wanted to go see the second one was because I was I, I've, I've been so in love with the first one, you know, and I mean, I'm going to die on, a, on this hill. But I really do think that the original Predator, the OG Predator from 87 is quite possibly a pretty perfect action sci fi horror movie when, when you get down to it. But like Predator 2, you know, I went to see it because of everything that grabbed me from the first movie. But with that second movie, it was it was more like, you know, because I, I was never a huge Danny Glover fan. I mean, I loved him from Lethal Weapon and some of the stuff that he had done prior. But I was never like, oh, my God, it's a new Danny Glover movie. You know, I, I got to go out and see it. But then you get everybody else that's just sprinkled in there. I mean, you get uh, you get Reuben Blades, mm-hmm. you know, who is amazing in that movie. And it just every single time you went to see it or every single time that I've seen it since, there's just something else to, to really like become enamored with. And I think that's really, you know, it, it, one of the big things that holds up is when you look at these movies, you know, years in the past, and of course this is 1990. So we're looking at a film that's 30 years old now, which, you know, is just weird to say out loud, but Mm -hmm. you, you look at this cast and kind of a defining trait of lots of these movies that we find that that exist for a long period of time is the cast and how the cast holds up and is able to, you know, kind of elevate it. Sometimes it's just filled with a whole bunch of, you know, uh, B or C level character actors that, that are just fantastic and you get them all in a pot and they're great. And I think that's kind of, you know, big here. Of course, you mentioned Ruben Blades. You've got me, uh, Maria Conchita Alonso. You've got Bill Paxton, who I really literally have a note, um, that I was taking during the film. That's just Bill Paxton, Bill Paxton, Bill Paxton. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, then you've got Robert Davy on here. You've got Morton Downey Jr. You've got, because it's 1990, so you can give a pass. You've got Adam Baldwin, because it's not Adam Baldwin of the last 10, 15 years. Um, but even having, you know, j- just smaller people who pop up for, for, you know, even like the, the, the low level bad guys and stuff like that, who are in the film are character actors who, You've seen them and you know they're that person, even if you don't really know their name, that I think that that elevates it, you know, to a level that you always have somebody that you can um, that you can hook your attention onto. Yeah, exactly. And so but I, what, what I thought was interesting with this being 1990 is that this kind of feels like Danny Glover saying, I want the rigs to roll. I want to be in a film where I'm the rigs. Yeah, you know, I can I can definitely see that, you know, especially with, with with the way that this movie kind of progresses along. I mean, there is a lot of there is a lot of Harrigan in the movie, but you get equal amount of Peter Keys and his backstory and, and the focus on that. And you get like terribly wonderful uh, just character actors that, you know, you you may not even know the names, but the minute they pop up on anything like Calvin Lockhart, who yeah. plays King Willie. Huge red <laughs> is the most fantastic character. And I mean, I would almost say that King Willie is is probably my favorite character out of the second movie, just because of all the shenanigans that he goes through with with his interaction with Harrigan. Yeah. 
now the second question we ask, uh, I, I let's just really dive into it. And that's because after Dustin gives this answer, we're going to pause because if you haven't seen this film, we're going to spoil the shit out of it because when you're looking <laughs> at a film that's 30 years old, the only way you can really get to what makes the heart of it special is to literally tear it apart and talk about everything that's in it. So Dustin, if you would please for the uninitiated in as few words as possible, describe the synopsis for predator two. Uh, otherworldly being out for a hunt in an urban jungle. In an urban jungle, yeah, there you go. Perfect. That that's I think that's what for the first two uh, Predator films makes them uh, so simple that that you have the very skeletal structure of something like that. That you you say, yeah, there's an alien uh, and it's hunting some people. One of them's in you know uh, Los Angeles of the future, 1997. One of them is in the deep jungle. And yeah. Cool. It, there you go. <laughs> um, but I think that's what makes them great. Now, we're going to pause here. And there was a the pause. I gave you two seconds. So you could literally <laughs> do it. You're on your own. I'm, I'm, I'm drawing it out so that you can easily press pause. But, I mean, it's, it's Predator 2. The only downside to Predator 2, I would say, is that it was a 20th Century Fox film. So that means that you're not really going to be able to get a chance to see it in theaters. Not that theaters are open currently because this is still 2020. But it's a film that if there was ever a reason to buy a movie, whether it be, you know, a Blu-ray or a DVD, if that if that's your preference, or a digital copy, it's something like this. Because while it is on a couple different services right now, I believe Stars is the main one. Because it falls under that 20th century Fox banner, when the licensing for certain streaming services goes away, it's then in Disney's court to decide, are we going to put this on Hulu or we just going to put this out to pasture? And Disney is known for not really re-releasing movies into theaters unless it is something like a Marvel film that they're, you know, putting out for a marathon when when they, you know, are have the latest Marvel movie coming out. So I think this is a really good time to take the chance and just go ahead and buy it. So you have it. If it's a movie you haven't seen before, I just rent it. And I think you're going to be sold on it. But the third question we have is Dustin to you. What is about predator two that that's helped it stay relevant for the past 30 years? For me, I think it was, it's the complete tonal opposite of the first movie. Like when I was growing up, the first movie was really my jam because, you know, I was into like the, the soldier kind of thing. You know, I would I would dig foxholes in my backyard, you know, piss my mom off because I would usually dig them in her garden. Um, you know, I'd run around with camo paint and everybody loved like the, the big boisterous like armament scene where you get all your guns together with all your friends and you roam through the neighborhood, which unfortunately, you know, in, in today's, you know, today's America, you really can't do that without potentially getting hurt by somebody. You know, so we, we really grew up in a, in a great time to, to really love those action movies. But with the second movie being a tonal opposite, I mean, this was gritty. It was, you know, 1997 Los Angeles. You know, it was the urban jungle. It was no longer the, you know, the worry of the snakes and, you know, all the, the things that come along with the jungle. You had to worry about, you know, downtown Main Street and everything that happened you know, in the, in the city and the claustrophobic type of, you know, 
I guess, atmosphere of that as opposed to the more claustrophobic atmosphere of the jungle and the canopy and the, the heat and everything. I mean, you still got you still got oppressive heat in Los Angeles during the middle of the summer because, you know, that's one of the, the taglines of the predator. You know, they, they thrive on heat and conflict, you know, so you, you definitely have to use like an urban setting. I don't think you'd find a, a predator out in the middle of rural Kansas. I mean, I don't think, you know, Hutchinson is going to you know get, get infested by the Yautja. But yeah, hey, I, I don't know what's going on in 1997 Hutchinson, so you never know. But but yeah, I mean, it, it was it was just the complete tonal opposite of, you know, the elite squad of special commandos that were dispatched by this otherworldly being to this elite, you know, task force of police officers that were being slowly dispatched by this otherworldly being. Now, I, I want to go back to a word that you've used a couple times because it's in my note, too. And I think it's something that may, uh, if, if people aren't expecting it, it might throw them for a loop. And that's that you keep on saying tone. And for people who haven't seen the movie or haven't watched it in a while, I think that's one of the most jarring things you you have at the uh, the start of the film is that you have a whole bunch of different tones that are kind of jumping all over the place, you know, from scene to scene. But if, if you know going in that the tone's going to be all over the place, it, you kind of acclimate yourself to it uh, early on and that you have a lot of fun with it. If you look at this kind of as a big cartoon, and I think that's anytime you look at these movies that, that are coming, it's something that I always say, a film that comes at uh, the start of a new decade is either one of the kind of last breaths of the previous decade or is setting the scene for the, the new coming decade. And I definitely think that even though this is 1990, that it definitely has lots of those hallmarks of big over the top, um, uh, you know, kind of comic in a way or pulpy action films uh, of the eighties that, that slowly fall away at the beginning of the nineties. And if you're not expecting that, it might seem kind of weird, but if you, if you let yourself go and, and kind of view it in that pulp comic sensibility, that then you just kind of sit back in your chair and have an even better time. Oh yeah. Dude. And that's, that's a perfect, that, that's a perfect kind of lead in because I mean, if you think about what came out in 1990, I mean, you had a lot of robust, over-the-top sequels to films that them, you know, the, the 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 initial entry of the film was a robust, over-the-top movie. I mean, you had RoboCop 2, Young Guns 2, uh, Die Hard 2, so you had all these films that were just trying to up the ante on the previous entry, and it's just like you said, it's either they're trying to cash in on what happened later on in the decade, or they're trying to use it as a, a bigger, more robust springboard into the new decade. And I think that's that encapsulates Predator 2 almost perfectly. That being said, is there a, a signature scene or moment that stands out to you that, that kind of exemplifies what it is that makes Predator 2 so special? For me, it's the, the face-off between King Willie and the Predator. Uh, you know, the, the, the sequence when they're in the back alley and Harrigan goes to talk to King Willie to find out, you know, what all is going on. And it, it's, you know, one of my favorite artists that, that has ever lived is Ice Cube. And back when Ice Cube dropped the Predator album, he actually sampled a portion of King Willie's dialogue. There's no stopping what can be stopped. No killing what can be. And, and then that whole little sequence there. But it, it, you you were talking about, you know, how some people will 
you know, they'll debate on whether or not this is a horror film. And, you know, I, I've had this discussion with Greg D and, and Genius McGee of the Nerds of Nostalgia and Nightmare Junkhead before. I think I, you and I have even had this conversation that the, the Predator movies, you know, and I know Alien is more is more easily put into that box of sci-fi horror. But Predator is as well, because there, there's a portion where, you know, King Willie is coming to grips with, you know, this this. He doesn't even he he says it's from the spirit world, right? Yeah. He says the pressure from the spirit world that he the, there's no stopping it, and he just resigns to the fact that he knows he's going to die, but he's going to give it his best shot. So there's the part where he like unsheaths his little snake sword, <laughs> and he and he holds his arms out to the side like you know come at me, bro, kind of deal, and the predator mimics his movement, and we we see like literally two seconds later that King Willie was no match. He gets decapitated yeah. and the predators kind of walking along like nothing big happened. Like he's just bringing home groceries from the store, <laughs> you know? So that, that pretty much is just like one of the most iconic scenes in the movie. And if, if that's not horror, I have no idea what is <laughs> because I've been watching movies in a completely different way my entire <laughs> life. Well, I mean, th- this is all that I'd have to to say to anybody who would, you know, place the argument that it's not a horror film or it's not horror enough, is that strip away the extraterrestrial aspect from the film, and but still keep keys and everybody, and have it be that they're tracking um, this killer because the killer was part of a, you know, a, a government, you know, project who uh, something happened and, and they've ended up created, you know, a, a smart killer or you know a, a super killer or somebody who's impervious to pain and you still have everything else in the film and it becomes you know a serial killer that they're tracking which for all intents and purposes is what this movie is because for the majority of the time the police the people on the news they have no idea that you know it's an mm-hmm. extraterrestrial they they think it's a whole bunch of slayings that are going on so from that aspect it is because you take that out and then you've got something that's along the lines of seven or any number of horror movies where you've got police officers who are on the trail of a serial killer so you, you just take that one element and you change it and then you know it's it's exactly what a horror movie is and all you have here is that instead of it being you know uh, a, a supernatural killer like a ghost killer or you know a, a serial killer that it's it's an alien being who's doing um the killing so it still definitely fits into that horror as for the signature moments i i definitely wrote down um king willie's scene because like i said the tone is is crazy you have the fact that the predator can can voice mimic people uh you've got you know as i wrote the voodoo drug kingpin who consults the bones and has almost tries to go out almost samurai you know style when it comes to honor Mm -hmm. you've got bill bill paxton and his giant outfits and his text and his attitude you have a scene in the movie which is one of the two that stick out the most to me is after um you have uh king willie killed You have the Predator go back to his ship, suck out, you know, all the juices and everything from (laughs) from the skull and polish it and then put it on his little trophy mantle. You don't have a lot of films that, you know, that take the time to be like, oh, yeah, we're going to show kind of his domestic life after he kills somebody for a second. And the fact that he's taking this time in care that here's this guy who you might just think is, ah, yeah, he's just a, a little drug kingpin, you know, who the actor's very over the top when it comes to embellishing his accent, but 
he's still taking the time to be like, no, this guy tried to go out. You know, it was a battle. I won. I'm putting him on the trophy. I'm taking this time. Uh, and then the second moment that stuck out to me is just because of how crazy it is, is you've got the wonderful scene where Danny Glover uh, is confronting Gary Busey and has him pinned up against the wall and is just, you know, talking smack to him and then lets him go, but stands his ground and stares, stares at him. So you've got Danny Glover facing off against the crazy that is Gary Busey and the way Danny Glover reacts is to clap his hands in front of Gary Busey's face for two seconds. Now, I, I don't know anything behind the scenes, but for something like that to happen, it's either Danny Glover's deciding that he wants to try to one-up and break Gary Busey and decided to do that, or they'd been filming the scene a whole bunch of times and Gary Busey was bringing you know his Gary Busey-ness of just being steely cold and weird, and and Danny Glover was just trying to throw things up. But he just has that moment where he claps in front of his face just to be like, I'm better than you. I'm going to try to break you in this moment. And Gary Busey doesn't flinch at all. Oh, not at all. Yeah, he had, he had the Kobe Bryant moment where, <laughs> where the ball gets faked in his face and he doesn't flinch whatsoever. And honestly, I would love to see uh, another behind the scenes <laughs> where Danny Glover, that, that's, an, that's, that's just a spur-of-the-moment thing that Danny Glover decided to do. Yeah. And Gary Busey is so Gary Busey <laughs> that he just doesn't get, he doesn't get like, disturbed by it. He's just like, okay, so this is something that we're going to do. <laughs> it's, it's, just a, it's just a small little thing, but to throw it in, it, it says a lot both about their characters, and then you're also laughing because you're just like, that, that's such a Gary Busey thing that he wouldn't have any reaction to it. Um, now th this one's a little bit more difficult, but I like asking it just to try to extrapolate where films go. And that's, can you think of a modern film, uh, that's reminiscent of, you know, Predator, uh, Predator 2. And what is it that Predator 2 does, you know, that, that this other film's not able to replicate? Um, and, you can choose any film you want, but of course you do have the low-hanging fruit of having both Predators and The Predator as the direct sequels that follow this, if you want to look at them through that lens. Yeah, you know, I, I've I've thought about something very similar to this line, and I'm not going to go for the easy one and say Predators or The Predator. <laughs> um, and the, I'm, I'm a person that loves the franchise. I was a little slightly disappointed with the predator because I think once they got a hold of it, I don't think that that was Fred Decker and Shane Black's movie at all. Mm -hmm. What we got, I would love to see like the, the black version of that movie. Um, but when you, the, the best way that I could put it, I mean, my wheelhouse is action. So I would probably say that the easiest one that I could compare it to would be like John wick Two, you know, where, where you continue to add on to the original but you do something completely different in, in such a way that it, it makes it its own standalone movie. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's definitely not something that would have come to mind. But no, but that's a really fair point that you're taking. You've got the first film that's ingrained in, in, in people's minds, you know, with the location and everything. And then you're taking a second film that's not only expounding upon the world and the mythology, but is also putting it in, in a completely different location and, and context where the characters are almost acting completely independent of, of the first movie, save for, you know, your, your titular character. 
Yeah, and and you know, it, with with John Wick two, you know, expanded on the universe. Predator two expanded on the universe, but it also took the story in a different direction because when you know, in in John Wick one, he was specifically out just for revenge, right? And mm-hmm. so that's that's very, I guess, reminiscent of what Dutch was going up against that that the the original Predator four. You know, he had killed his entire assault team or his rescue team, and and he wanted revenge on that. Well, no, Danny Glover is just more so he's he's kind of thrust into this role of having to survive against this this creature that he has no idea how to defeat. And John Wick 2, it's it's very much the same way. I mean, he he gets the marker called in and he has to do it as opposed to wanting to do it. And now what I also think is kind of interesting about that, I mean, the John Wick films, of course, are, are a completely different beast, um, but but they're. They're different because they're at this time where they're also trying to change the language uh, of, you know, how films are being made. They have the CGI in there, but they're trying to have more of the hand to hand and have things be more practical. Um, I think for a movie like Predator 2, something that works about it when you go back and watch it with and we do have to address, you know, the the later sequels because it's the easiest thing to to compare where the franchise is going is that you go back and you watch something like like Predator 2. And the fact that you have all those bodies that that are skinned and and hanging from the the ceiling and having it be practical effects, that that there's a a tactile and real and gooiness to those bodies that are are hanging there, you know, the all the blood and and uh, and destruction that that's happening like you can feel it on all these characters whereas uh, you know some of the later films that they don't have that they get away from that but you know by having the cgi and so for whatever reason people might not you know kind of stay away from predator 2 that that it works so well because uh, of having that practicality to it yeah and it is it's a it's a really gooey movie because i mean if you think about the the og predator I mean, you get the sequence where you see General Hopper and his men that are skinned. But other than that, I mean, there's real no gore up until you see Blaine get killed. I mean, because even when, when Hawkins gets killed, he, he gets killed in an off-screen moment where you just see the body get dragged away. You don't see what actually happens to him. But, you know, with, with the, the Predator too, I mean, you see guys getting just getting disemboweled and you've got like the, when you go into like the scorpions, like armory in the beginning of the movie, which leads in like the first five minutes is an epic, like action sequence in and of itself. I mean, you see the guy with like two people have their chests ripped open, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's just like, okay, so th- this is what we're doing. We're not even going to wait for the viewer to catch up with, you know, the, the hell on earth that's about to be unleashed. We're just going to show you right off the bat. Do you, do you feel at all, because you mentioned the off-screen kills that are in the first one, and, and of course, returning to this movie, uh, you, you've got um, Jim and John Thompson, who, who wrote uh, the first film. I, I really hope I got that correct, but we'll say that I did. Um, but they're coming back, and, and they bring that hallmark to this film, too, that there's a lot of kills where you have people who are dragged away or might be thrown, and then you don't see you know, what happens and, and lesser movies or movies that don't have the budget or trying to go for a smaller rating don't show you the impact or when they do show you the impact impact, it's not, it's not something big, but every time we see the aftermath of something in, in this film, it's horrific and over the top. I think the only one 
that we don't get that for is Danny's death. Yeah, that, that's correct. Because when he when he gets, um, you know, he does the Danny boy, and, and he loses his balance up in the up in the ceiling. He falls back. The predator, you know, catches him by the foot as he lets go. And then all you see is his necklace get thrown down and just blood spatter. But all you hear is the screams. I mean, you don't see anything that happens to his body. Yeah. And, and like Paxton, when, when he gets thrown on the subway, just a minute later, you, you see everything that the Predator had done to him. Oh, yeah. Do, do you feel that that's do you feel like that's cheating at all? Or do you feel like because you actually see the aftermath and how varied and detailed the aftermath is that, that that it's okay that you don't actually always see all the kills on screen. Uh, you know, honestly, I think that's fine. I, I, I appreciated the fact that you didn't see Danny's death because, you know, it, you knew that Harrigan was going to deal with it in a specific way because as he had talked to his, his CO, you know, they had come up on the streets for 15 years. I think it would have done a disservice to, to Danny's character you know, Reuben Blades to show him all mangled and skinned and everything else because he was such a, he was such a lighthearted, almost um, antithetical character to Harrigan. I mean, he was the one that kind of kept Harrigan kind of grounded. You know, he, he was there for him, you know, no matter what, but he wasn't like, like, you know, Oh, let's go in there and kick ass. But he was like, well, no, we're going to go kick ass and I'm going to follow you into the depths of hell kind of thing. Yeah. But I think it would, I think it would have cheapened him as a character if they would have shown him get beat up and bloody and skinned and everything else. Now we like to have kind of weird questions <laughs> that we throw out on here just to, to, to dive into the films because as, as much as we love every film or, you know, lots of the films that are being talked about on here, there, there's always a couple moments that stick out to us. And the moment that I completely forgot about that I noticed watching it this time that's just kind of there and done is uh, Leona is when she's being, um, you know, checked out before she gets put in the back of the, the ambulance. They mentioned that she's still alive. And then they mentioned, oh, she's pregnant. Do you ever feel that there's something there's going to be something that happens to that or it's going to the, the predator happen to do something? Because like when they mentioned that, I'm like, oh, no, did did the predator implant something in? inside her and that's that's what they're thinking in there because they they literally just put like the stethoscope to her for two seconds and then she's like oh she's pregnant and then we never see her again for the rest of the film you know and i've thought about that too because you know the part where she goes back and she's looking for bill paxton's character uh, on the on the subway on the train and she runs into the predator the predator grabs her by the throat lifts her up sees sees the fetus in her stomach and lets her go you know because it would be it would be a dishonorable kill at that point you know, and when when Harrigan goes to check on her, the paramedic goes, "Oh, I, I've got I've got a fetal heartbeat, or I've got fetal sounds." Yeah, I, it, there's something there, and I don't know whether or not it was just this viewing that I really kind of caught onto it. I'm wondering if that's Harrigan's baby. Be- yeah, because I, it, I, I wondered it, why they were making such a big deal about it. Because right. Uh, I mean, we, we get a feel of lots of these characters. We we know that Leona's the ball buster and and she's a badass. Uh, we, we know that. Um, that Danny very much is, you know, is the right hand man of of Harrigan, even if he's not directly his his partner. You know, we 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 understand these feelings. We understand Bill Ka- Paxton's character, even though we we have a little bit of time that he is a showboat and he is kind of a dick, but he's actually really good at his job. So we we get all these character beats 
So everything that we see of them is important. So the fact that all of a sudden it's like, because she's been running around and she's been doing all this stuff. And then it's like, oh, check it out. She's She's got a baby. And then we're going to mention again, oh, the paramedics are mentioned that she's got a baby. And then it's just something that's dropped. There's something that was just kind of weird about it. I don't know if something got cut out, if it's something that's in the novelization. But this time I was like, what's what's going on? I understand, you know, why the predator let her go. But it's like, did he did he do something? Was he because she seems like she's going to be killed and like did he put something on like a little pacemaker to make sure that she's going to be okay or 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 what's going on you know it it, it was just a a little moment that stuck out that it's like you wrote something there's a nugget here but we never we never get to see more to it right yeah and and the the look that danny glover gives as harrigan is is seeing her off into the ambulance I mean, I, I really do, and I think it was this watching that it just really kind of stunk him, uh, stuck in my head. And I'm like, man, maybe maybe that is Harrigan's kid, <laughs> you know? Maybe maybe this is he's just now figuring out that she was pregnant all along, and you know, maybe maybe this was something that she didn't even know. Because I mean, I don't think that she would go balls to the wall like she did if she knew that she had a kid, you know, or yeah, that she was true. she was you know pregnant or whatnot, but. It just it that that look that Danny Glover gives when he when the paramedic says that just leads me to believe that that was Harrigan's kid. Now, for anybody who thinks that we went off on a tangent here, then you clearly did not listen to the Friday the 13th episode a couple weeks back where <laughs> where where Greg Mucci and I spent an extended period of time discussing what exactly Pamela Voorhees is probably doing between the years of Jason's death and when she decides to get revenge. So we're not going too crazy this time. We actually have some substantial, you know, meat here to be able to to tell. Um, now, before we get to the final question here, you know, I, I just wanted to talk for a moment about. Just, we, we, we talked about the character actors. We, we've talked about, you know, where this film stands in the franchise um, and how watching these movies, there's little things you pick out that you could watch Predator, you know, 50 times, but this time you're noticing something about the baby. I've seen this movie, you know, at least 10, 12 times. I haven't seen it in about a decade. What struck me more than any other time is how much Alan Silvestri's score uh, just sounds like a slight variation on his Back to the Future score. Yeah, yeah, and I, I've actually got that written down in in my notes when I watched it, <laughs> because there, you know, Sylvester, and, and this this is another hill. I've got a lot of hills I'm going to die on, but this is another hill that I'm going to die on, and I, I will I will preach this to the high heavens to anybody that who even half ass wants to listen. But you know, it, we, we celebrate people like Chopin and Bach mm. and Mozart as, as being fantastic composers. I'm I'm of the, the, the I guess the the thinking that if we don't have you know statues erected to John Williams, Danny Elfman, Alan Silvestri, and, and a slew of other individuals, say a hundred years from now, we will be doing them a terrible, terrible disservice for all of the the joy that they have brought to us over the years. But it's like you said, this is a you know the second entry into the film. They bring back Silvestri to do the score, and there there's a there's a moment where you know in, in the first film where Mac and Blaine uh Mac is saying his goodbyes to Blaine it's got the 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 wonderful trumpet music in the background it's kind of like mm-hmm. it, it's kind of like a a trumpet serenade to you know seeing off your fallen soldier brother and they repeat it again in Predator 2 
when Harrigan goes to Danny's gravesite, and you know when, when the want some candy little the little kid <laughs> kind of uh, reference point in the film, and you know I don't think for me personally if they would have given the reins to a, another composer, um, I don't think there would be such a close tie to the original film. Mm-hmm. If they hadn't have brought Silvestri back for the for the second movie, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I mean it, it's it was just interesting was was noticing how there's cues and beats that are close to to back to the to the future, which is also a score that he did. It's not it's not a bad thing per se. I mean, you, you start out by mentioning John Williams, and all people need to do is go listen to elements of uh, both Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, and then t- uh, toss on. Uh, Indiana Jones and mm-hmm. you'll yep. see how close and, and how connected some some pieces are and then throw on uh, pieces from um, what's it called uh, the first Superman film and you'll see that these pieces are are connected that you have little beats and and stuff like that but it just didn't it didn't occur to me just how that that Sylvester was the same way that you have the these are these are close and I, I'll never disparage I mean Sylvester he he's recently coming off of doing um what's it called the last two Avengers movies of Infinity War and Endgame so you, you can't say that he's any slouch really oh no no not at all and I mean his his like IMDB reads like a murderer's row of just like fantastic like different types of movies mm-hmm. you know like like you said you've got predator predator 2 the avengers forrest gump i mean it's just like th- these movies that are so like tonally different and I mean, you got one that's otherworldly and then one of uh you know forrest gump <laughs> you know you, you've got these <laughs> movies that are just you would never you would never see any type of underlying fabric that ties them together but yet like you said you get those little beats where you're like Ah, okay. That that's who scored it. You know, mm-hmm. you you get that, that that fingerprint on the music, and I I think it's it's very telling that not not only are these you know composers who who've been you know making you know music for films since you know the the seventies and eighties that they're still making it now, but you look at 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 the crop recently, and that you you maybe only have like four or five. Um, you know, new scores that, that people know the, the names of because these guys are still working that, that it makes me, it makes me wonder like when exactly we're going to get that full new crop. Cause you do have people who, who maybe score one good movie and people, you know, that they know of that, that, that piece, but you don't really have like a, a whole group that, that are just taking over the film landscape nowadays. Like you maybe have two or three of them, who are starting out are being able to do it. I mean, uh, Giacchino's the the main one that comes to mind, you know, for doing, you know, the Pixar movies and doing um, the the Star Trek films and the and the recent Star or you know uh, helping out a little bit for some of the recent Star Wars films. And you know, th- there's not a ton of people, so it it, it feels like feels like that's the frontier that that we definitely need to make sure is as you were saying in a hundred years from now if we want to have you know these statues then we need to make sure that that people are remembering the importance of of film scores and movies yeah exactly i mean i i couldn't have put it better just those are some of the things like i know a lot of people find a lot of solace in in music 
whether it be, you know, your favorite band or something that you listen to with, you know, a parent or an older sibling, younger sibling kind of deal. But my like my chill mode is listening to Conan the Barbarian, you know, <laughs> and, and listening to the Terminator soundtrack and and those kind of things. It just it puts me in a different mind space that just instantly relaxes me and kind of makes me think back to when I was a kid. But I mean, when it comes to the the last couple of years, is is there a a, a score that that stuck with you? And, and if there's not, then that's okay. But I, I'm I'm just curious since we're on this thread. I mean, Sylvester even got brought back to do uh, the Predator. Um, but is is there a score that you can think of from like one of the last couple of years that that stuck out to you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Drive w- without a doubt. Drive is one of like of the newest crop. Um, Drive is one of my favorite, and uh, you know Cliff Martinez did, uh, I believe, the majority of the scoring for that movie, and and you know brought in some bands to do some, you know, some vocal pieces. But that is, you know, and I understand that people say you know Baby Driver and stuff like that, but that's more of a, a theme to a movie, uh-huh. you know, for certain scenes. But yeah, dude, Cliff Martinez knocked the Drive out of the freaking park. It is incredible. I've actually got. I've actually got the drive soundtrack right now in my truck. And that's, that's what I listen to during the day. And, and I mean, he's somebody who's worked for a while too, you know? So like, well, Cliff Martinez is great. I, I'll, I'll never say anything bad about him, you know, but you think of like Cliff Martinez and then people, you know, who are working on, on another level, like um, Carter Burwell, who does the majority of the Coen brothers stuff that, that you've got, you know, several of these names it's just interesting that like I'm trying to find out where the divide is here, and it's not to disparage it at all because like the drive one that's that's great, and Martinez I think is is definitely somebody who you know his name um, I think will you know only continue to rise as people go back and and look at that stuff. I'm just, I'm interested to see what it'll be uh, that that forces out those those new voices in composing because I think you you brought up the best thing in something like baby driver, that baby driver for its use of music is, is absolutely fantastic. And it's one of the things that makes that film so special, but in a way it's taking to the next level, what Quentin Tarantino does of taking pre-existing songs and, and having them inform, you know, the shape and scope and the editing of certain scenes and the way the action, you know, is gone about in something like baby driver. Um, so because people are trying to do that, that you, you have, you know, imitation is, is something that, that people like to do a lot when it comes to film, so if we get to a point where people are trying to use, you know, m- more of those songs to to move the film along, you'll lose some of that that underscoring, I think. Yeah, I'm I'm 100% with you on that one. I, I really do. You know, when when you typically use like um and I I don't want to say this in a derogatory type of way, but when you use prefab music as opposed to a composed score for a film, I'm not going to say it's an easy way out because there are, there are directors and you know sound editors that do it you know, just masterfully. But when you have a composition that is written specifically for a film that is unique and it's robust and, and, and you know it draws people, it's like no one is ever going to forget Indiana Jones or no one is ever going to forget the Terminator, the dun 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 ever. I mean, and those those are some of the the the, the staples of, of my spins on the on the weekends, 
And I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing, like you said, what the new crop of composers bring up because there are some, there's some fantastic soundtracks out there. You know, it's just a matter of getting, getting some of these newer composers and some of these lesser known composers more traction to their work. Yeah. Like, like one of the ones that I'm really curious and we'll, we'll, we'll get back on track everybody for the final question in a second. But one of the ones that I'm curious to see where he goes is, uh, Ludwig, um, Goranson, um, the, the guy who, who won the Academy Award, uh, for Black Panther, uh, cause he, you know, he's done a whole bunch of, of Kugler stuff. Um, and he's the one who actually, you know, um, I know who did Tenet and I can't remember how involved, um, what's his face? Uh, Hans Zimmer was because of course it's, it's a Christopher Nolan film. So Zimmer is going to be there, even if it's just, you know, listening or sitting <laughs> in the wings. In the room. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Even it's just like, uh, he just consulted. Um, but I mean, you have him making that jump. Um, and then of course the, the, the saddest one, um, was, uh, when, um, uh, uh, Johan Johansson, um, passed away just a couple of years ago. He's the one who did the majority of, uh, uh, I'm going to butcher his last name. Viel the new, um, the, the guy who did, uh, you know, Sicario and, um, and, and all those movies, but, uh, he, he also did the music for, um, Mandy was one of the last films that he, oh, did. Yeah. and it's like, he just had a very distinct, you know, tone, you know, for, for all the films that he was working on and stuff. And, and there was a chance that he could have been, you know, the, the next big one. Um, and I, I, I feel bad trying to trying to think of all the these younger people because they they all have names that I sound like an idiot trying to pronounce them like you know several of the people who've won the last couple of years like I'm I'm wasn't the hugest fan of the winner um from from this year because I thought it was I I thought it was good but I didn't think that the music uh, necessarily completely informed the film. Um, but she's worked on a whole bunch of, of other stuff was, uh, Hildur, uh, uh, goods, Nadiator. totally butchered it. So I, uh, I, I apologize Hildur. Um, but, but she's the one who won for Joker. Uh, but she had also, um, worked on, uh, the, the films with, with Johansson, you know, be, being involved in, you know, the Sicario and several of the other ones and in the music department. So, I mean, there are a couple people, you know, to, to look at who are on that forefront. But I mean, if you've got a couple hundred movies, you know, coming out a year, you, you, you'd think that, that there would be people who rise up. And I think part of the problem is that you, you still have these, I, I don't want to disparage them at all, you know, but they are getting up there in age is, is to, to be like, Oh, these old fogies are still making the music, but it's, it's true that you still have, you know, um, Sylvester, you still have, you know, Williams, you still have other people, you know, who are working on, on lots of these big scores. And so you're not having all those opportunities for, for people to, uh, to, to come up and, and, and be able to, you know, to, to make the new scores, if that makes yep. sense. No, it does. Totally. I'm trying to think of the, the other guy's name. I think it's, it's Brian Tyler. Am I, am I getting that right? Or am I messing that up? I'm trying to write, yeah, uh, Brian Tyler, who who's done a whole bunch of 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 indie films as well as big movies, but like you see his name get get attached to like you know some big properties and small properties. So there are you know cinematic 
music voices out there that I think that we could all do a good champ uh, job championing so that they that they become these classical masters when we think of people like Sylvester and and Williams and and Jerry Goldsmith and and Horner and all those people. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Completely with you on that. One. Hey, I'm 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 fine with that. I mean, we're talking about movies from from the you know from the 90s you know that's a sequel to a movie from the 80s and that there's so many lush scores that that you know inform the movies just as well and i i think that that that's a big thing you know when it comes to to horror and action is is how you can underscore it but back to predator 2 since we went on this tangent is the 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 fifth and final question we like to ask everybody and we know what the answer is going to be from you because we've listened to, you know, for, for you talking about an hour about it, is having rewatched this film again recently, is it still worthy of the reverence that, that you know, it's built up over time? Or for, for some people, maybe a reappraisal? Or do you think that that sheen is slowly being wiped away? No, I, I definitely think it's worth its place in the canon of the, the films. Um, I, I think it just grows. I mean, there, there's some aspects of it that get dated a little bit. Um, you know, like the, the, the drug war of the nineties kind of deal, uh, has kind of lost its luster. Um, you know, cause it's not on the streets that, that we see every day on the news, like they were portraying in, in the beginning part of the film. But, you know, for the movie itself, I, I do, I think it, I think it still keeps its luster. I think it's going to gravitate and, you know, pull some more people that might not have um, appreciated it as much as they should have back in the day. I, I think it's going to pull them toward like the the yay Predator Two fight. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I definitely think it's it's going to be one of those films where we we look back and where it's it for me it's definitely not going to be on the 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 altar of awesome badass Arnoldness mm-hmm. as the first one was. But Danny Glover did a fantastic job in in the movie of being exactly what Arnold wasn't in the first, you know. So he, I mean, it, it's like you what we were talking about early on when we first started talking. the The character actors, I think, did more for this movie uh, than Danny Glover did, and that's not to take anything away from him. I think no. this was meant to be more of an ensemble kind of, you know, shared screen time as opposed to. Yeah, this is 1987. We got to give it to Arnold. We paid him so much money, so he's got to be the the focus. Whereas, you know, Danny Glover was coming off of, you know, great, fantastic, huge movies, but you also had to lend screen time to Bill Paxson, Maria uh, Maria Conchita Alonso, and Ruben Blades as well. So, yeah, and of course, Gary Busey. And I I wasn't sure what to think when I was going to be rewatching it because. The Predator films, it's definitely a series where they all have, you know, a, a fan base. You know, there, there's never been a point in time really where anybody has been like, ah, the Predator films, they're all just giant pieces of shit. I mean, people might have an issue, you know, with one film here or there, but there's never a point that they're really just like, as a whole, they're crap. But after the first one, you, you do have that kind of wariness. And so having not seen it for a while, I was like, I remember it being fun, but I'm not sure if it's going to be that great. And then sitting down and watching it and being like, no, this is a lot of fun. It does have lots of goofiness. It does have lots of up, over-the-top pieces. But then you've got lots of action sequences. You've got a lot more blood than than I remembered. The, the effects are good in it. Um, one of the best things that you can have to happen to... A a hero in a movie is that they get fucked up a lot. And Danny Glover, definitely by the end of this movie, 
He's bleeding all over the place. His clothes are torn. He's really tired. He kind of barely wins, if we're honest about it, in that fight. And there's just there's a whole bunch of hallmarks in this film that, that people search for uh, when they're going back and, and, and looking for, you know, action and action horror, action sci-fi horror from this period of time that I'm like, this is a lot of fun. And especially when you compare it to sequels that are nowadays that that they choose to be bloated and they lose that sense of genuine fun for for manufactured fun. Because you think about, as you said, you know, the, the character actors that we've been talking about that that are in this movie. If you get rid of Leona, if you get rid of Cherry, I, I think this film doesn't really work as well. But you have these these larger than life characters in a completely insane situation that at, at the same time kind of grounds Danny Glover's character. And then you just go along on this ride. Yep. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Well, I, I mean, that, that was the main thing. So I, so I would like to say thank you very much for choosing this one because it was a lot of fun to, to get to revisit. And I don't think it's one that lots of people would normally think off the top of their head of, oh, 1990, what is a film that I should go, bla- uh, go back <laughs> and, and, and watch? Um, but, and Adrian, but, I'll tell you, that's a, that's a goddamn travesty if they don't. <laughs> well, I mean, it's you, you've got many of reasons to 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 do so, and I think it it, it works out r- really well. So I I want to thank you for definitely for choosing this one. I, I I always like it when people choose an against the grain movie when, when it has um you know one of these big you know ten twenty thirty forty uh, milestones because that that's the point. Um, the thing that kind of sets apart if a movie stands the test of time doesn't have to be the greatest film, but a movie that stands the test of time is one that you can look back every 10 years or so and still say that movie was really fun. That movie was well made. And you know, it's not, it's not going to win any awards, but I definitely think in another 10 years from now, you sit down and you watch predator two, you'll stay. That's a lot of fun. The, you look at lots of movies that are made like nowadays or within the last, you know, 15, 20 years, some of the special effects when they're trying to push CGI, you know, have, have worn thin and maybe don't look that great just because they were trying to be like, Oh, we need to get these special effects out. Cause they're great. And they were, you know, cutting edge state of the art at the time in, in 2005. And you watch it now in 2020 and you're like, Ooh, maybe they, maybe they shouldn't have gone so heavy on the CGI. And you look at something like Predator 2 and you're like, oh, the infrared stuff still completely works. The the yep. w- When he's in hologram form, it still really works. The the blood and gore that you have, it still really works. Yeah, that's that's I mean, you said it great because there's there are a lot of films that I mean, I can think back to just the mid 2000s, like you were saying. And some of the, the CGI is just a little iffy. They tried to push a little too much, and they just like, oh, we've got $10 million. Where are we going to throw it? Let's do a gigantic thing. You know? <laughs> but it's, it's like, you know, with the with the Predator franchise, when they do the cloaking and all of the different things that they do, it, it it's not – I'm not going to say it's timeless because there, there are certain aspects of it where you can see CGI – from 1987 or 1990 is definitely not on par with CGI of, you know, 2020, mm-hmm. but it never takes you out of the movie. Yeah. It, it fits within that world. 
Yep, exactly. Yep. Perfect now, way to put it. The, the way we like to close out the show here, um, I, I know that some people are getting sick about it, but we just have to kind of accept the fact that the way we view movies and stuff is, is very different this year. And it's going to be different, you know, going forward for the rest of this year. So since everybody's still at home and everybody still wants to watch a whole bunch of, of things, I would like three suggestions from you on films that people should definitely, you know, take time to go out and watch. They don't have to be new. They can be from any, you know, period of time and the existence of films, but three movies that you think are underseen that people should take time to rent and watch. Okay. Now is this for, to try to get an idea of my personality or just films that I think people, people need to gravitate towards? Three movies that you would like people to watch. I mean, everybody, we've got literally everything under the sun almost available uh, for people to to rent or watch on some type of streaming service. And everybody's clamoring for something, you know, that they haven't seen before. So three films that you like that you think deserve uh, either, you know, people to go back and rewatch or deserve more attention just in general. Okay. Predator, Predator 2, and Predators. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> and that's the end of the totally show. Totally, totally joking. Um, I would say probably my first pick would be Angels with Dirty Faces. Oh. Um, one, one of my favorite, absolute favorite uh, Cagney films. Um, I, I think he was a brilliant actor. I mean, he deserved a lot of the accolades that he received um, because he played that that gangster stereotype so, so well. Mm-hmm. Um and I was fortunate enough to be exposed to that when I was uh, when I was taking film classes at the University of Kansas. So Angels with Dirty Faces would be one. I would say The Guest for if you want to go with kind of a new <laughs> a, a new kind of slasher uh, slash horror film. Um, that that film's just brilliant in in my opinion. Uh, just with the little inferences to, to you know Halloween three and, and the way that they set that up because it is it's like a horror action film. Um, and then probably one of my, my newer favorites of probably the past five years, uh, the villainous. And, and that was a, a lot of, um, a lot of what they pulled, uh, some of the John wick, like homages for, um, it was, was from that film. And that was a blind buy. I, I just happened to, you know, see that scrolling across my Amazon, you know, you purchased this, so you might like this. And it was a blind, a blind buy on Blu-ray, and that is one film I can honestly say that I will never say I wasted money on. Now, I, I think that's one of the the great things about the last couple of years when it comes to because you're a very big action guy, so so you can easily you know back me up on this. But that overseas it has just been killing it when it comes to 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 action movies and just the, the way that they're saying what can we do. To, to go crazier and go, you know, over the top and everything. So for people who haven't seen it, um, it says that the villainous is available to rent basically everywhere you can imagine. Um, it also shows Hulu. So if you have Hulu, you, you'll easily be able to watch it on there without, um, you know, having to spend any money. Angels with Dirty Faces, because of when it was made, it shows that it's not currently streaming anywhere, but you, you can easily pick up um, a uh, looks like either a Blu-ray or a DVD, and I completely am blinking. Sorry on the uh, the second film that you said. Oh, you um, just said it. The, the guest. Oh yes, the the guest, which of course has Dan Stevens. Um, 
So, you know, you, you have no reason not to see it. Cause dude, it, he, he is a handsome, handsome dude. And Man, he's if, a t- I had, if I had half his looks, I definitely wouldn't be a contractor. <laughs> I I mean, he's he's Dan Stevens, so no one's, you know, no one's going to complain uh, whatsoever. And uh, Angels with Dirty Faces has a uh, DVD of it that's available. So that means that it's a crime and a shame that it's not out on Blu-ray. So if you want to get out there and complain, I know that that Dustin has a, a wonderful but loud voice. So he will definitely yell from the rooftops, you know, um, to get that movie on Blu-ray, which I think it should, because I think there's no reason for it, it not to be. Um, and the guest is also going to be easy for anybody to be able to find because it's available everywhere to rent and also on Netflix. So knowing that 90% of the known population has Netflix, um, <laughs> you should all be watching the guest very soon. Yeah, absolutely. Now, thank you so much for coming on, Dustin. But where can the nice people of the Internet find you? Okay, so you can find me personally at Mount underscore Baldy on Twitter. Um, I'm on the, the Twitterverse quite frequently, just kind of spouting off my love for all things Predator and, you know, goofy other things. Uh, you can find uh, Genius and I's podcast at Media Rewind Pod on Twitter. We also are on Facebook um, and all over the, the other interwebs. Um, but yeah, if you like what you hear, if you don't like what you hear either way, let us know. I mean, I'm, I'm always up for suggestions. I'm always up for uh, polite, you know, mixed conversation. Um, I try not to take anything too serious or too literal. So, I mean, if you think I'm full of shit then you're, you're probably right. So, <laughs> so, but no, that's, that's where you can find me. That definitely throw some, some good, uh, TV suggestions, uh, their way. Because uh, a couple of the shows that that they had been bringing a lot of attention to have uh, sadly been killed in the last handful of years. Um, yeah, I mean but, it's one of those things, man. If if I could if I could like start a commune, and not necessarily like a creepy commune, like wherever yeah. you know drinks Kool Aid and shit like that. But if, if I could create a commune, we would watch Into the Badlands on repeat and, <laughs> and drink High C, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So some Kool Aid, some Kool Aid jammers. but yeah so definitely check them out for the show you can easily find it on twitter at horrorversary um you can find me on twitter as well at at yo adrian taurus it's very simple you're just looking for a picture of redger hauer with a pigeon on his head there you go um at the same time uh both the the show and where i do writing um and where you know Media Rewind has been in the past is over at Boom Howdy. I just wanted to mention that at this time because we have a very silly, very fun thing that's going on uh, right now that we're in the middle of that's called To Be or Not To Be, as in To Be with the the streaming service that's out there that we've got a whole bunch of different uh, writers and podcasters and indie filmmakers who each day they are putting in submissions for films that they've either never seen before or never heard of. Um, and Predator 2 would kind of trounce some of the options that we've had, but definitely go on <laughs> over and, uh, and and see some of the writers that we have over there. But once again, thank you, Dustin, so much for coming on and discussing Predator 2 with us. Man, anytime I have a chance to talk to you, man, it's, it's, it's welcomed, especially in our current environment with, you know, social distancing and trying to keep everybody safe. And I'm still waiting for you to, to, to let me know when you want to talk Jim Cotta. So, we, you know... We, we always have that. <laughs> yeah, we 
<laughs> right now we kind of have to sadly put a moratorium on it for a couple months because it would feel unfortunately a little bit ghoulish to do but we can do we we can find a way to record and, and maybe do like a media rewind tribute episode to to the wonderful soul who who you know basically gave his career to to that film so i'm, so I, I'm all for it man anytime <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for checking out the episode and until next time, especially with everything going on, stay safe and be nice to each other.